Tiffany, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So some shows have a lightning round, but they save it for the end. And we like to do our lightning round up front. So just ask a series of rapid fire questions, get your answers. It's a fun way to warm up for the interview and generally get to know you a little bit better. So are you ready for the lightning round? Okay, let me put on my let me put on my lightning suit. <laughs> awesome. I am ready. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the, uh, the the spirit there. So, what app is on your home screen right now that you can't get enough of on your phone? None of them. None of them. <laughs> Are you doing a digital detox? Did you take? I wish. You know, I I think that I'm equally balanced. You know, okay. I mean, you know, from a work perspective, obviously, there's mail and the things we have to do sure. to sort of run our lives. From a personal perspective, I'm actually trying to be really good in those times where I am trying to, you know, detox, if you will, sure. and take the time. So it will be music, um, not even a work podcast. Like I try to just stay as much away from wanting to pick up my phone Understood. and do email. It's so tempting. It's so tempting. So the good news is, I guess the answer is uh, I'm not addicted to an app. <laughs> Which is a good place to be. But it's rarely not in my hand. Gotcha. Understood. <laughs> so if you are listening to music or something like that, any favorite playlists or bands or albums that you're into right now? Yeah. So what I usually at a dinner party, what's fun to do is to say, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only bring three musical artists with you so either like a person or a band like right. their whole catalog who could it who would it be right and uh so that tells a lot about people definitely right and so that question that you've just asked is is there anybody favorite i go back to that okay who could i not live without I love it's that like question. what mood mood i'm in right if sure. i'm working out i have a you know you need to get your butt to the gym and do what you got to do definitely music if I'm chilling, I like, uh, I like, I'm not a classical fan, but I do like instrumental. Yes, same here. Um, and I like those that sort of really calm my mind. And so I just, I just tweeted out a couple of days ago, the, uh, there's a list of 10 of the most relaxing songs ever produced. Oh, and they were digitally done. Very cool. With yeah. psychologists that it actually, because of the order of the music and when they, introduce certain instruments it lowers blood pressure and your heart rate it's like clinically proven to relax you so there's a playlist now on on spotify um that i'm now a little bit addicted to when i'm <laughs> flying or like i'm Sounds having like one of those days yeah sure. it's good yeah. uh and then you know if you just really want to rev it up i never can pass down a little pink fluid mac cool. and then you know nowadays and sometimes i i don't know yeah. I like all kinds of music. I love that answer, especially the playlist. That's I'm going to have to check that out. Is there a book that you've read in the last year that's particularly inspired you? Could be the last couple of years. Anything stand out? Besides my own. Yes. <laughs> okay. Growth IQ, which is out today. <laughs> which is out today. But uh, there's so many because in preparation for my book, I actually read about a hundred business books. Like I had to reconsume things sure. um, that I've always enjoyed. So one of the first business books I ever read was In Search of Excellence uh, by Tom Peters. Uh, and it was kind of a full circle moment because he gave me an endorsement on the book, on my book. So, uh, very so cool. you know, like literally almost like 35 years later. Um, so that was crazy. Uh, did you discover that at Gartner or where, where did you come across that book for the first time? Oh, no, I was 17. Okay, wow. Yeah, that was cool. my first 
business book ever. So my stepfather gave me In Search of Excellence and he gave me Seven Habits of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, so those were my first two sort of, you know, soiree into reading business books. Yes. And then I don't think I read any again for a little bit because I was, you know, in college and high school. Um, but, you know, recently there are so many. Uh, I love the um, originals by Adam Grant. Adam Grant's great. Yeah. Uh, I like The One by Keller. I think The One Thing, I just really enjoyed that. It's really succinct. I like the feel of it. Um, I love Made to Stick. I think it's a great marketing book for those people who want to try to get ideas to Chip speak. and Dan Heath, right? Yeah. 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 Another good one. You know, there's just so many. And now, um, you know, now that I'm a, a published author, yes. I get asked this a lot. And, and there's so many influencers that have been so great to me. My One of my, you know, all-time favorites is Purple Cow by Seth Godin. So, classic. you know, I have my classics. Yes. Very cool. And if there are any podcasts that you're listening to that are not work-related, so maybe they're fiction, maybe they're you know, something along those lines, does anything stand out that you've heard? Yeah, you know, it, it's that's a great question too, because going back to when you asked me, like, what's the app I can't live without? You know, I tend to listen to podcasts for work. Understood. Yeah. yeah. Which is great. I mean, they're kind of like an e-learning slash early augmented reality type tool where you can do so much more while you're listening. And I, uh, yeah, use them the same way. Yeah, and so, I'm a listen visual learner, not a read learner. Understood. So yeah. I enjoy uh, I enjoy the podcasts. Very cool. So your book Growth IQ is out today, and it's packed with 30 real world stories and 10 strategies, among many other things. It's an excellent read, and I picked out four of them. On the surface, people might think that they've heard these stories before, but I think that there are lessons inside these stories that people maybe haven't considered as much as they should. I think these lessons are valuable for anyone, whether you're uh, a business owner or uh, generally whatever you're doing. So if you'd like to, I'd love to dive into these four stories and get some of your key takeaways and hear about why you chose them. So the first one is Apple. And we think we know the story of Apple, but back in 2015, they were really revamping their music streaming service. And Tim Cook, the CEO, got a letter from Taylor Swift, which basically said, you know, how are you going to approach the partnerships? How are you going to approach artists? What are you thinking? And how did he respond? And how did that kind of like lead the way for where Apple's at now, which is obviously an even better place? Yeah, I'd say this. I'd say, uh, you know, Apple is one of those companies that has always approached partnerships in a very unique way. Uh, You know, early on, it was authorized resellers or retailers that were going to sell, you know, Apple equipment, desktops and laptops and monitors and things like that. And so they always had kind of this extended network. And so they understood the value of somebody, you know, a customer wanting to go and walk in somewhere. And this predates the Apple store. Right. So they needed sort of that ability for customers to go in and, and have things fixed or repaired or purchased or advice. So they got partnerships. And what was interesting about that story that I used was when a company forgets sort of the lifeblood of what has helped them grow in the past, one of them was partnerships. And so when Steve Jobs came up with the, you know, we want to do something that's uh, a little bit better than what, you know, air quotes around Napster, sort of what Napster did, you know, we want to take advantage. And so he went out and made uh, deals with all the record labels. And, you know, we're going to try to make this so that we do it the right way, because we think soon people consuming music in this way is going to be the preferred method. Definitely. So he struck all these partnerships. So then that laid the groundwork for iTunes. 
And, you know, as that started to gain momentum and and they started to move more towards sort of a platform, software-based, service-based sure. company, now I want to launch some more things. Uh, and they were trying to compete differently. So they go into the streaming service. Right. Right. And so now they're trying to attract new customers. So it was this sort of 90-day free trial of Apple Music, at which time the artist would not earn any money. But at the end of the 90 days, Apple sort of turns them into paying customers. Sure. Similar to what Netflix does or Blue Apron does or, you know, anybody who's got this sort of recurring revenue service. Right. Salesforce did. I mean, you know, there's lots of companies who have done it. And so Taylor Swift sends this sort of one little note. <laughs> which is basically like probably sending horrible flashbacks to Napster and other like P2P streaming services. Well, even worse, right? She has 100 million followers. Sure. Like that's that's not the thing you want to have happen in this Definitely sort of not. age of social uh, you know, awareness and how quickly news can spread either good or bad. And so it was very quickly that Tim Cook responded and said, you know, let's take care of this. And so, you know, the, the joke in the book is it was the swift response to <laughs> the Taylor Swift tweet. I love right? it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it was really, you know, we probably just didn't do this correctly. We just maybe didn't think about it in the right way. Yeah. And it sounds like he had the humility to just pause for a moment and say, wait, maybe these people that we've struck up partnerships with in the past, maybe they know what we should do or maybe they have some valuable insights and he, uh, he jumped in really quickly. Which yeah, and I'd also, I'd also say that the, the, you know part of the theme of the book is this kind of interconnectedness of decisions that get made. So I don't think someone woke up that day sure. and said, you know what, I just want to completely upset Taylor Swift. <laughs> probably not what Defin happened. Definitely not, yeah. Probably not what happened, right? Probably wasn't even in their consciousness. They were just like, look, we're going to give a 90-day trial because we want to get more people in the door and then we're going to upsell them to buy the monthly service. Sure. And so I'm just trying to grow the business, but not thinking about the impact or implications of that decision right. to the rest of the business. So what's their partner strategy? You know, what's their relationship with artists? Sure. What's the relationship with the music studios? What's, you know, they were just doing the, you know, I'm the marketing manager or the product manager, and I'm just trying to drive new business and drive growth. Yeah. And so it, the message there is just really this, you can, you have to be very careful not to make decisions on one piece of the business or one part of the business or one silo of the business or product category of the business and not think about the implications to the rest of the business. And that's a, especially in the partnership, which that's the example that was used for, uh, for partnerships. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people don't understand the subtleties right. of the impact of, of turning partners off that are so critical because Apple doesn't produce their own music in that way. Yes. So if all the artists leave, it's, they right. have no service. Yeah. And yeah. I think that type of holistic approach is great for anyone to remember that there's going to be second, third, and even fourth order effects that it's difficult to think about that. But the more you can, you know, the better your business is going to be. But the good news out of that was, and the lesson for me was not only the interconnectedness, but right. on the flip side of it is how quickly they responded and corrected. Yes. And so you're not always going to get it right. And so if you don't get it right, that's okay. I mean, this sure. is all about how do I fail, learn, iterate, fail, learn, iterate. I mean, that's the world we're in. Definitely. So you can't be afraid to fail. So, you know, it just wasn't the greatest representation for them. Right. But the great example out of that was how quickly they responded. And interestingly enough, you know, fast forward a couple of years, they made the mistake again with uh, streaming video. Right. Ouch. And so, you know, it's just a matter of everybody, even companies like that, that we hold up, right, has to... They will learn and make a mistake. It all has to do with then how do you respond really quickly so that your customers don't feel like 
your customers and partners and broader shareholders don't feel like you're ignoring uh, what they want. Great advice. And speaking of streaming video, way before streaming video was a thing, there was a company called, I think the first name was uh, Kibble or something like that. It was Netflix. And so Reed Hastings was in the office of the CEO of Blockbuster or a group of executives. And he was basically offering 49%, I believe, of the company to Blockbuster to invest in. They turned their nose, said this isn't going to be the future. This, you know, you don't have any stores, you don't have this. And Reed just went back to work and built Netflix into what it is today. What are your takeaways in the Blockbuster versus Netflix uh, incident or, you know, whatever you want to call that? Oh, there's so many. Yeah. Uh, but people also might not know that Blockbuster actually had a service similar and started oh, doing wow. streaming and started doing those things. It was just too early. And so sometimes it's a... You know, there's sort of in the book, there's two things. You have partnerships and you kind of have coopetition. Right. Right. So there's 10 paths to growth. One of them is partnerships, one is coopetition. So in this particular example, it was a little bit coopetition, right? right? Because it's like, look, you're going to mail DVDs. I have DVDs. Feels kind of competitive. Sure. And so the coopetition angle of partnership, different than the Apple, right? Where we're going to partner with record labels because we complement each other. People get that. Right. It's the coopetition side of partnering that people get uncomfortable with. Uh, so it, it wasn't necessarily, um, so I, I guess the the lesson for me in that is we tend to get caught in an inside out view. Mm-hmm. What do we think we should do? What do we think our customers want? What do we think the market is going to be in the future? And what got missed there, you know, and you could use it with Kodak and a number of other examples is that the context of the market was changing. Right. Right. People were now saying, you know, no, I actually want to, Blockbuster proved people want DVDs and watch movie at home. Right. So they proved that worked. But now they're saying, you know, what was going on at Blockbuster was, well, I could show up and maybe the movie I wanted wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so I couldn't kind of plan ahead if I was going to have like a watching party to watch Gone with the Wind or sure. whatever it was. Right. Um, so they were trying to solve the problems that as a customer, he Reed was facing right? right late fees couldn't get the music I, or the movies that I wanted etc and so that's really what the problem was was the context of the market changed the customer said they wanted something else the brand said I don't think that's really what the customer wants mm-hmm. and that's the miss there I mean you could dissect all the little things where you know Netflix walked in and Blockbuster said no and they didn't think it was the future sure. All that is true, but the lesson for me was context of the market was changing, the customer's desire was changing. And and the thing that's interesting is Blockbuster had all that data at their fingertips. Yes. Right? They knew all my rental history. They knew what movies I liked. They weren't recommending because it was so early in in the whole movement of how do you use data better so that sure. you can serve the customer better. Uh, so th- those lessons for me are uh, really specifically the context of the market changed. But then if you think about Netflix and say, well, what if they'd launched streaming mm-hmm. and skipped DVD altogether? Well, that wouldn't have worked because yes. not everyone had bandwidth Still to the to house. Yeah. Right. And so this is all about sort of timing and and watching uh, what what customers are actually doing. And I have a feeling that the folks at Netflix either understood Moore's Law or, or were watching it to some extent and realized that streaming was just an inevitability and they kind of timed it perfectly. Don't know how they did that, but they uh, probably careful planning. Well, you, you know, I think it's, um, well, if you look at MoviePass now, right, it's some of the graduates of of this story sure. now launching MoviePass. And can they hang on long enough? You know, they, you know, sort of 
are we going to let people go see Mission Impossible? You know, if they go twice in a month, we aren't making any money. We're going to keep lowering the prices. Like, it, does it economically make sense? Can they right. hang on in a long enough time to get the density of customers? Should they raise the price? Is the value valuable? You know, just because one business model works in one industry doesn't doesn't mean you can apply it in another industry and have the cost model work itself out. So will it continue to uh, struggle or will it turn itself around yet to be seen? But I think that, you know, those are the bets you have to make. Sure. Wise words. All right. The third example I wanted to dive into is just, I think one of the best lessons on mindset that I revisit again and again is Jeff Bezos's letter to shareholders. So in 2016, he fielded a question that he typically gets at his all hands meetings, which is, Jeff, what does day two look like? And that question is a result of him always beating on the table that it's day one, it's day one, and trying to develop that type of you know, mindset and ethos into his team. And he goes on to say that day two is stasis, followed by irrelevance, followed by excruciating, painful decline, followed by death. And that is why it's always day one. So when he says day one, how do you, what have you learned from that? And how do you view his, uh, his philosophy there? Yeah, I'd say that he, similar to a number of other CEOs, I tend to call out Mark Benioff is one of them, Tony Heiss from Zappos, you know, there are uh, um, Danny Myers from Shake Shack, where the day one philosophy has carried through the entire history of the brand. Right. And that day one philosophy for a company who's been around for a long time is is hard to establish day two. Yeah. Right. So if you've been around 20 or 30 years and you're listening to this or 10 years and you're like, I, I already had my day one. I'm at day 4,862. I didn't start it out that way. Right. It's what can you learn from saying, yes, but the core message there was the core tenants of the business have remained. Right. right? It was going to be maniacally focused on the customer. It was going to be, you know, trying to drive uh, efficiencies into the business. Like how do we build out beachheads in certain industries and then surround them? How do we use data to serve the customer better? How do we make sure that the experience when someone deals with our brand is frictionless and easy and all of those things? None of those things are going out of style anytime soon. <laughs> right. Yeah, and and ev- so and everyone's trying to replicate sure. the mental model not the not necessarily the business model because the business model is you know it's e-commerce right online right everybody does that it's the mental model that people really struggle with replicating and so if you are starting a business today and listening to this it's like how what is your day one model mm-hmm. and how do you make sure that everybody you hire everything you do always leans back to the true north of whatever your day one is and if you forget what your day one is you end up in day two and so you know ours is uh, you know, obviously we have the one, one, one model, it's trust, it's you know, all the things that we have. Uh, and there's no question, you know, 18 years later, you can ask any of the 30,000 Salesforce employees and everybody will say they know what Mark started the business on and sort of the things that are important to us. And there's, there's no question. Um, and we, we saved the best for last there. That's, that's great because the final example here is Salesforce. So full disclosure, Salesforce is a client where we are proud to have them as a uh, partner, they've been a big support for our first two podcasts uh, and our third, uh, you know, next podcast that comes out. We're really excited about that. But the giant Salesforce that you see today that just had one of the best performing quarters, I think, in all of SaaS history. Congratulations. That's really exciting. But it didn't start out that way. It started with, uh, as you remind everyone, with four men and two dogs inside <laughs> Mark's apartment. How did those early days shape the company and 
what did you find when you joined Salesforce? Yeah, and I get asked this often. Uh, you know, prior to being at Salesforce, I was a research fellow at Gartner for for a decade, and then before that, I ran a division of Gateway Computers, and so I was sort of a practitioning leader in the tech industry, and I worked for services companies and telcos and distributors, et cetera. And so I was a practitioning academic, if you will. And so people would say, you know, while I don't necessarily believe this to be true, oh, you could have gone anywhere. I'm like, well, couldn't have gone anywhere, but you know, I get the point, <laughs> sure. right? Uh, why did you pick Salesforce? Mm -hmm. And uh, it was very easy for me. Um, you know, I've probably been to a thousand tech conferences across my career, wow. whether I'm speaking or just attending. You know, early in my career, I was attending, and then the decade at Gartner, I probably, you know, I was speaking it a lot uh, and attending. And Dreamforce, which is our annual conference every year in San Francisco, that sort of takes over the city with 150,000 people or so. You know, we'll be speaking there. We're really our, excited about of that. Of our closest friends, right? Thrilled. All sort of show up. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have just as great of a time as you always do. Yes. Uh, and um, it's the only conference that I felt when I left that I actually wanted to be a better person. And so it, it spoke to me where I was in my career that I wanted to pivot to say, how can I take a percentage of the things that I do and give back and pay it forward? Yes. Um, because I've been so blessed and stand on the shoulders of so many people who gave me time and paid attention to what I was trying to accomplish. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. And this supports that kind of uh, behavior from its employees. And so right. it aligned to where I was in my career. And so without a doubt, that's why. Um, I, I chose to to come here, um, and and then I just think that overall, uh, just the entire executive team and and everybody I work with, uh, up and down and left and right in the organization, uh, we're all just trying to make the world a better place. And I love it. Sell some services. I love it. And if you have a chance to come out to Dreamforce, we will see you there. We're thrilled to yeah be there as speakers, and it's uh, always a great time. So final question here, growth IQ is about, uh, you know, growth, but it's way more than business. There are lessons in there that are applicable to anybody, no matter where you're at in your life. And I hope everybody listening goes out and grabs a copy today. And Tiffany, are there any big takeaways that you learned about yourself when you were writing this book? Any Anything come to mind that you'd like to share with your listeners about the creative process there? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, well, I'll start by saying that I started this journey uh, telling myself over and over, like, I'm just not a writer. <laughs> like, I'm a speaker. Okay, sure. Right? Like, that's, I'm, that's my way of communicating. Right. And in my career as a salesperson, you've never really had to write in that way. And then as a Gartner analyst, obviously I had to write. Right. Um, and I, but I had a lot of help and a lot of support and it was, but it was still difficult for me. It wasn't an easy process. Like I would look at that screen and that little flashing one little light. And it's just like, it's just overwhelming to me. Like just, I couldn't, couldn't work it out. So, you know, when I made the decision that I think I might want to write a book, you know, it was terrifying on so many levels. So I had to find a way to actually get what's in my head and in my spoken word onto paper, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in a story that I could feel proud of. So, you know, I always uh, go and lean on people who know what they're doing. So I went out to my trusted network of people who have done this a lot, you know, so I went to Dan Pink and Guy Kawasaki and Seth Godin and Naomi Simpson, many of which uh, gave me endorsements for the book and just said, you know, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And they gave me really good pieces of advice, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I would share, look, I'm a little nervous about this isn't my genre. You know, this isn't sort of right. my medium to try to communicate a story. And they said, you just have to find a way to get it out of your head and onto paper. And so I started recording and transcribing. So I would like stand up and almost give a presentation 
of a particular chapter. And then I would sort of frame it up. And then I started to arc sort of what the story was going to be and how I wanted to keep each chapter very specific. And then, you know, and then I had great collaborators that really helped me um, figure out how to tell a story right. on paper. Which is not easy. Which is not easy. And there's 30 case studies. And so it's not a case study in totality on, you know, Shake Shack or on McDonald's or on Sears. Right. It's a short burst in mm -hmm. time. And so they're about 2,000 words each. And so taking, you know, 8,000 words, which is where it's kind of started, right? right. And you got to get the story down to 2,000. It's like everything is so important in the story, <laughs> but then it isn't. Right. And so that's really where I needed to lean on help on just helping try, try to flesh out the the key points. Um, and then I just had a, you know, I had a great team around me and, and then lo and behold, uh, you know, when I finally read the finished product, you know, after, cause you just don't see the forest through the trees. Like I just, it's a bit hard. It's a bit hard. Uh, and so once I sort of turned it in and my publisher I'm publishing with portfolio and portfolio got it, you know, they do their thing, gave it back to me and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, you know, <laughs> you like take, Sigh of relief. <laughs> you take a deep breath and you yes. sort of say, okay, you know, what, what, uh, what do I have to do to make it tighter? And the advice that they gave was just really critical to help me get it across the goal line. And that was just little stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I have almost 8,000 words of footnotes just alone. So, you know, I really tried to pull, you know, why is this important? Why now? What, what lessons can we learn from these key companies? What are the things you can take away? You know, and I also tried to make it feel lighter, mm -hmm. you know, not like a heavy, um, dense business book, you know, with sort of PowerPoint slides or Excel spreadsheet kind of images. Right. I did it with sketch notes and I tried to underline what I thought people would find interesting. And um, so I tried to make it a book that I would want to want to read. So somebody who's both a visual read kind of listen learner. Uh, but I'd say the most difficult part was actually recording the audio of the book. Oh, not easy. Not easy. So, you know, by like day three, I couldn't say the word United States. I'm not really <laughs> sure what was up with that. But I'm like, can I just say U.S.? They're like, you have to say what's in the book. Like, Yes. The verbal tics come out when you've been doing audio for hours and hours. All of a sudden, you can't say normal words that you're There was about six or saying. seven words I yeah. just couldn't say. And it just got funny. Like, yeah. it just, And then it was, you know, my jaw was hurting. My throat was hurting. And then yeah. you're just learning how to... Uh, Doing a podcast is one thing because, you know, you can sort of take a breath, take a stall. You're kind of having a sure. conversation with someone. But perfect audio is an entirely different thing to record. Yeah. It, so I go into the break room and I'm at uh, Portfolio's recording studio in, in Southern California in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, on the wall is like, you know, all the Grammys and all the things they've won from the spoken word books and you know, all this stuff. And yeah. you're, I'm kind of like, oh, what am I <laughs> doing here? They're like, oh, you're the author. Boy, authors never come in. And I'm like, okay, you know. So then I go in the break room, you know, and the guy sitting next to me was the voice for the Da Vinci Code. And, the guy, you know, and I'm like, holy. <laughs> and just when you're sitting at the table and you're like listening to them all talk, you look at them and you literally say, you are doing exactly what you should be doing. You have perfect storytelling voices, right. you know, for the spoken word, yeah. right? Like they're great orators where I can talk on stage, which is kind of how I started the book. And then I was like, yeah, you can't do that, right? Because you can't shout at people in their ear when they're like, you know, driving to work, like you need to do this. <laughs> so by day two, I sort of got my groove. So I had to go back and I just did the first like, you know, 10 or 15 pages again, because once I learned what that all meant. So that was that was uh, 
that was interesting. But I think the whole process has been terrifying, cathartic, exciting, all at the same time. Very cool. And those are the best experiences, right? In a certain way, when you're finished with them, you're glad you did them. So, and we, we are glad you finished the book. Tiffany, it's excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mission Daily. And hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.